Passing Judgment listeners, it's Jessica, and we have a different kind of episode for you today. This is a, an episode that includes a conversation I had with Glenn Kirshner. He's an NBC and MSNBC legal analyst. He's a former federal prosecutor, and I talked to him about all of the potential crimes and civil liabilities that former President Trump can face. Now, this sounds like our typical episode, but this is actually recorded as part of Loyola Law School's Journalist Law School. This year, it's a virtual program, and as part of that program, I had a panel with Glenn where, again, we talked about all of the different ways that former President Trump could find legal hot water in his future. So we talk about, for instance, the insurrection, whether or not the former president can face criminal or civil liability. We talk about the E. Jean Carroll case. We talk about the New York investigations, the Georgia election fraud investigation. We talk about other federal crimes like obstruction of justice and campaign finance violations, bribery, just to name a few. I really had a great time in this conversation, and I hope you enjoy being able to listen in and be part of this program that is so near and dear to my heart. Let's do it. Let's talk about this. We're going to talk about various ways that Trump could face legal liability. Experts on this topic, President Trump, former President Trump, is now a private citizen. There are no rules prohibiting the indictment of private citizens, um, but some of the actions that he took while present may still be afforded some protections. It's hard to know, Glenn, where to start because there's so many places we could start, but um, let's start with the insurrection. And then I want to talk about E. Jean Carroll and a whole host of other things if we have time. Sure. Now, biggest question, can Trump be criminally charged based on his actions leading up to, I would say, leading up to the insurrection? Uh, yes. So what's our next question? No. So we could set aside, I don't know, six hours to talk about Donald Trump's crimes before, during and after leaving office and only scratch the surface. But um, we can jump right to the insurrection. I never go anywhere without my federal code. Have federal code will travel. So um, there are, I think, two ready-made criminal statutes, each of which squarely apply. And let me just, I can't see the audience, so I don't know exactly who the audience is. I, I teach at George Washington University, and I have been you know, driven crazy by distance learning as opposed to in-class learning. Um, but so kind of bear with me, um, even though I can't see the audience. Um, I, I think there are two statutes that um, squarely apply and that the facts even publicly available to us make out a prima facie case, certainly make out probable cause to charge Donald Trump with one or both of these offenses. And let me just add, I hasten to add, I'm not a political person. I know because I am, uh, I work for MSNBC and NBC News, people probably have a certain perception of my politics. I happen to grow up in a conservative household and I've voted for Republicans and I voted for Democrats. And as a 30-year Fed, uh, courtesy of the Hatch Act, I never involved myself in politics, which was just fine with me because I had no interest in involving myself in politics beyond voting. So I don't come from a place of politics. I come, of pl I come from a place of a former career prosecutor who tries to assess whether there's enough evidence to bring a charge. Um, so I think if you look at 18 U.S.C. 2384, which is a seditious conspiracy, 
And I'm going to try to boil the elements of that crime down for, for the layperson. Uh, if two or more people um, conspire, and let me just pause there. A conspiracy is a fancy word for a very simple concept. A conspiracy is simply when two people get together and decide to commit a crime. Doesn't have to be written, doesn't have to be expressed, doesn't even have to be spoken. It can literally be a glance back and forth between two people who know what they are about to undertake jointly, and then they walk across the street and rob an old lady of her purse. I've just described a conspiracy to commit robbery. So there is no magic when it comes to proving a conspiracy. It takes an agreement between two or more people and one act, one thing that one of the co-conspirators does toward the commission of the offense. We call that an overt act. Interestingly, once the agreement is struck and the overt act is accomplished, you've committed the crime of conspiracy to do whatever it is you agreed to do. You could abandon the crime before it was ever committed, the substantive crime, the underlying crime. So a seditious conspiracy, two or more people conspire to overthrow or put down or destroy by force the government, or this is all in the disjunctive, or levy war against the government, or oppose the authority of the government by force in an attempt to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the government. Or, and this is an important, uh, I think this is the last substantive clause of that statute, or um, take or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority of the United States, like storming the Capitol. That last clause of the seditious conspiracy statute is tailor-made for what went on here. Now, we can look at another statute that is adjacent to that one, 18 U.S.C. 2383, rebellion or insurrection. This goes right to the inciting an insurrection. And it's a very simple statute. It says whoever in, I'm going to take liberties here, whoever incites or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid and comfort to those who do, is guilty of inciting an insurrection. So the elements of inciting an insurrection are pretty straightforward. And what we saw Donald Trump do, and I would add Don Jr., Mo Brooks, and Rudy Giuliani, who were Donald Trump's mouthpieces, because they all chimed in, inspiring the crowd to go attack the Capitol. You know, it, it's nice when you have the precise words that you need to prove um, in order to make out a criminal charge spoken by the perpetrator. Donald Trump told the people to go down to the building and stop the lawfully elected uh, president and vice president from having their win certified. That action word, stop, you know, give me three hours, give me a jury in DC, my backyard where I practiced for decades. I think I can convince them that Donald Trump committed the offense of inciting an insurrection and probably a seditious conspiracy, though that one is a little tougher to prove in my estimation. Oh my gosh. I feel like this that was such a fulfilling answer because it gives us so much detail. And this is something that 
I mean, I get this question so often. I mean, people watch this play out on TV. Now, I want to just emphasize something you already said, um, but it's one of the most common questions I get, which is how hard is how hard is it going to be to show intent? You know, Jessica, for 30 years in courtrooms, both military, because I started prosecuting in the 80s as an army JAG, so I handled lots of court martial cases, and in civilian courts, federal and local, I've proved intent for 30 years with no defendant ever saying, um, uh, listen up, I intend to commit a crime. Did everybody hear that? Okay, there's your proof of intent. We infer intent from statements and from conduct. Um, so, you know, there is an instruction that is given by every judge in every jurisdiction in courtrooms around the nation every day. And it goes something like, there is no way to look directly into the human mind and, and see somebody's intent. That is why we allow the jury to infer intent from conduct. For 30 years, I never had a problem proving intent. And I tried more than 50 murder trials in the courts of DC. I tried RICO trials. I did rape cases, guns, drugs, burglaries, you name it, child sexual abuse, you name it. I tried those cases. I never once said, uh, that's, that's unfair. I'm sure I wrestled with the evidence I would need to prove uh, guilty knowledge, criminal mens rea, but I always managed to find it. Of course, if I didn't, I lost the case. Perhaps I couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But I am driven to distraction when all of these naysayers are like, it's so hard to prove intent, to prove guilty knowledge. No, it's not. Because Donald Trump oozes guilty intent, criminal mens rea in everything he says and does. Every tweet he sends is a statement by a party opponent. It's an admission that I could introduce as evidence against Donald Trump in court. And when the man said, come to D.C., we'll be wild. They stole your election from you. They're taking your president away from you in that building right now. Get down there and stop them. I have just laid out facts that support criminal intent and satisfy the, the, the Brandenburg case, by the way. That's the next thing I was going to ask you. So, um, well, so you said because, because, yeah, he, because what his words did was they inspired imminent lawful conduct. Not only do we know that in theory, that's exactly how this played out. He said, get down there and stop a governmental process. You have no business stopping. And they did. I mean, for goodness sake, that can't be protected speech. And here's the beauty of it, Jessica. The people who are prosecuting the insurrectionists are my literally professional lifelong friends and colleagues. Some of the lead prosecutors, federal prosecutors, the assistant United States attorneys for the District of Columbia, which is where I spent nearly quarter of a century. These people were my homicide prosecutors. I, when I was chief of the homicide section, a number of them, I tried their first murder cases with them when they were baby lawyers. Makes me feel very old. But what I can tell you is from the outside looking in, because they do not inappropriately share information with me, 
everything they're doing is exactly what federal prosecutors should be doing tactically. And let me give you one vivid example of that. A week before last, I think, uh, or it might have been last week, the days run together, a defendant, an insurrectionist named Paul Allard Hodgkins pleaded guilty. And he pleaded guilty to one felony charge and the prosecutors agreed to dismiss four other felony charges. He pleaded guilty without cooperation. That means he's not going to sit down with prosecutors and provide incriminating information about other insurrectionists. And he pleaded guilty with kind of a de facto cap on his exposure, his possible sentence of less than two years. And everybody, not everybody, so many people lost their minds. I can't believe the prosecutors are letting him get away with this. They dismissed four felony charges. They're not making him cooperate. He's going to spend less than two years in prison. The, the, the count they made him plead guilty to, they didn't make him, but the count he pleaded guilty to was um, obstructing an official congressional proceeding. And got, they got rid of charges like unlawfully entering a federal facility and damaging government property, charges that, yes, they're important, but they don't mean anything in the larger scheme of the insurrection investigation. They have a building block with that guilty plea because this defendant did what Donald Trump told him to do. And so that that is such a valuable guilty plea, even without cooperation, which I can spend 30 seconds explaining why a guilty plea without cooperation can be an extraordinarily valuable thing to the larger case. Um, and that is because sometimes I had I had defendants who I couldn't flip. So sometimes I let them plead guilty to what I would call a building block charge against others. And then I still use them as a witness at trial. But guess what? I use them as a hostile witness, not a friendly witness, not a cooperating witness, because once he pleads guilty, there are ways for me to take him, put him on the stand in trials against others, even though he's not cooperating. And I'm going to be indelicate here cram that guilty plea down his throat so the jury knows exactly what he did and what he pled guilty to. And I'm doing it in a way that I'm remaining at arm's length from him. I'm not embracing him as a cooperating witness like the prosecutors will have to do with Joel Greenberg, who is the ugliest of cooperating witnesses against Matt Gates. So there are ways to maneuver it. And from the outside looking in, People can look at a plea in isolation and say, oh, my God, the prosecutors are messing this case up. No, they are tactically doing exactly what they should be doing, which gives me even more confidence in my friends and former colleagues. So I'm going to do what I do in class, which is sum up. What have we talked about? Can President Trump be criminally liable based on the insurrection of January 6th? And I hear the answer being yes. We talked about how it is possible to prove intent. We talked about the potential defenses here and how you gave us a very clear indication of how you can move past the First Amendment defenses. And um, and by the way, I thought you were going to be a lot, when you said, let me be crass, I thought it was going to be a lot worse than that. No, so, I, I, I try not to cuss, especially when I'm in front of an audience. So, um, well, I was bracing myself for a lot more. I was already thinking about the bleep button. 
Now, um, very briefly, and we can keep the kind of 30,000 foot view on this one, it's not just potentially criminal liability here. So there are suits dealing with uh, whether or not President Trump could be civilly liable. And I'll just briefly remind everybody, there's a suit by Representative Benny Thompson. Uh, There's another suit by Representative Eric Swalwell. And they rely on um, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1870 and 1871. Um, And Benny Thompson's suit is really interesting because he joins with the NAACP and he talks about the, I I don't know how to articulately say this, but the fact that the big lie is a racist lie as well, because when you're trying to overturn an election by targeting certain voters, it has racial undertones at the very least. So the allegations here, again, are civil allegations. I know that we had discussed not focusing on this, but is there anything that the journalists you think should be thinking about in terms of these civil cases by the two representatives? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest hurdles um, any plaintiff has to overcome when suing a government official is the immunity, the the sort of qualified immunity that all government officials enjoy. And I am about to go on a rant probably for the next several days about what I saw in the Department of Justice appeal in the E. Jean Carroll case, because they basically asserted that that immunity, and they said it should protect the president and she he should not have to respond or be the defendant or respondent in the E. Jean Carroll case. So the Department of Justice is trying to substitute itself. If it does that successfully, it will then also successfully to uh, move to dismiss the case and it will be dismissed. I'm not so sure that the, uh, the Court of Appeals is going to buy the Department of Justice argument, but I anxiously await that argument and, and the court's opinion. So government officials do have some qualified immunity or limited immunity for acts that they take that are within the scope of their employment while they are employed by the federal government. Um, The question, of course, becomes what's within the scope of your employment, what is within the scope of your official governmental duties, and what is not. So I read uh, Congressman Swalwell's complaint. I thought it was really well done. Um, I happen, I'm not a civil law practitioner. I never was, but my sense, thinking back to law school a very long time ago, is that that will probably survive a motion for summary judgment, a motion to dismiss it without the, the parties ever having to engage in discovery. So I, I think there will, it will probably move on to the discovery phase. That's my hunch. Um, and I have not read uh, Representative Thompson's in its entirety, but it, it, it sounds like you know that that one should also survive in my estimation. Um, but it will be really interesting to see if the Department of Justice weighs in and tries to remove Donald Trump the way they just did in the E. Jean Carroll case. And, and let me just, while I'm on the E. Jean Carroll case, because this highlights to me you know, one of the chronic problems of our country, our institutions, and our laws. 
I would urge everybody to read the, the pretty easily digestible government brief in the E. Jean Carroll case, which you can pull offline. You know, it's 25 pages, but it's double spaced. It's not a tough read. And what you can distill out of it is really troubling. They say on page 15 um, that uh, they're, they're using, they're citing some authority, some precedent in a case that involved a, a congressman. And they said a congressman, and this, and this completely parallels what Donald Trump did in the E. Jean Carroll case. They said a congressman is expected to answer questions at a press conference. And the congressman is expected to answer accusations of misconduct at a press conference. This part kills me. They say, so the government can have confidence in his you know, integrity and his ability to serve. Let's set that aside for a moment. But, but what we distill from this is that politicians um, in the estimation of our legal system and the precedent that is included in this motion, politicians are expected to answer questions at a press conference about personal misconduct in their private lives, including before they were elected to office. And the opinion goes on to say, and they are even covered if they lie and they defame others in the process including people they victimized, courtesy of their own misconduct. So the Department of Justice has asserted all of that is okay, and we will still remove you as the defendant or respondent, and the Department of Justice will gallop into the rescue. If that is the state of the law, if politicians can use their notoriety, their profile, their platform, and their bully pulpit to lie about and defame people that they have victimized, like an E. Jean Carroll, how do we feel good about our nation's laws and institutions siding with the powerful, the influential, and the connected at the expense of the victims and the citizens? This is something that I think we need to tackle and take on directly, because I would like to say, um, you know, that this is not what America is about. The sad reality is in our legal system and in our governmental institutions, this is what America's about. Siding with the rich, the white, the male, the powerful, the connected, and the influential at the expense of people who are none of those things. That's my rant for the day. That was it? Oh, well, I mean, I could go on, believe that, me. That was not like a Prozac-worthy wor rant. I thought we were really going to have to get like some <laughs> antidepressants out for that one. So let me try and push, uh, push this a little bit. We were talking about uh, criminal liability when it comes to insurrection. We moved to civil liability. And it brings up the idea, as you said, it brings up this question of what about protection for acts taken while the president was president, which you segued us perfectly into our next topic, which I want to talk about just a little bit more because I feel like there's more rant left in you, Glenn. Oh, and, a whole lot, all day, every day. <laughs> and that, well, that's why we watch you on TV. Um, and that is the E. Jean Carroll case. And so yeah. I think everybody knows the background here is that E. Jean Carroll, a journalist, um, accused 
former President Trump before he was president of sexually assaulting her in the 1990s in a department store. And that the statute of limitations on this crime has run, but she is bringing a defamation suit, a civil defamation suit, which has become, as many of us know, a backdoor way to litigate these sexual assault claims. It's not a substitute, but why do I say a backdoor way? Because the defamation is based on President Trump saying, no, I didn't, and here I'm gonna utter some comments that disparage your character. So if what's a defense to defamation, the truth. So if the truth is, no, I didn't, then that's a defense to defamation. So how can we litigate that defamation case? You have to figure out, we hope, what the truth is. So that's the backdoor way of litigating that sexual assault. Now, uh, what happened in this case, it looked like there was about to be discovery uh, again, E. Jean Carroll sues President Trump, and it looked like there was going to be discovery. The Department of Justice under Attorney General Barr kind of comes in and says, we're going to defend the president. And uh, the Department of Justice, well, they say, we're going to come in and defend the president. And uh, many people very upset by this decision by the Department of Justice. I'm going to skip over some of the details. The case is on appeal. And the, one of the big questions was, will President Biden's Department of Justice take the same tack that the Department of Justice should be here defending President Trump? The two big questions being, uh, should President Trump have the same level of protection as other federal employees when it comes to this particular suit? And the one that I think is the big one that Glenn really zeroed in on, this idea of does this really fall within official duties and conduct? And that's the one, Glenn, where I just cannot get over the idea that anybody can say with a straight face that Trump was acting within the scope of his job when he denied the sexual assault allegation and then disparaged, in my view, disparaged Carol's character. So if you could fill in the blanks for me, what did I miss? And what else should we be thinking about here uh, you said, and I agree with you, that the Court of Appeals is not likely to rule with the Department of Justice, but what else should we be thinking about? We should, I think, pull back to 30,000 feet and think, is this, is this the government we want? Do we want laws that, I hate to use this word because of who popularized it, do we want laws that rig the system against the people in favor of the, the powerful, the connected and the influential, you know, and, and I mean, zeroing right in on the language that now this is federal um, precedent. The Department of Justice cited a case that says the following in trying to take Donald Trump out of the E. Jean Carroll case. Responding to media inquiries is a congressman's now substitute president because the precedent the older case had to do with a congressman's defamatory speech. But responding to media inquiries is a congressman and a president's authorized duties such that the responses fell within the scope of the employment, even when defamatory. That Those last three words, even when defamatory, Jessica, what does that do? That sets a precedent that encourages, it doesn't just excuse and condone. 
It encourages high government officials to defame people that they have victimized in their private life, like E. Jean Carroll, and use their very platform, their bully pulpit, their profile as high government officials to verbally savage the victim, the E. Jean Carroll. And the Department of Justice says, even when defamatory, even when false, even when damaging to the person about whom you're speaking, it's okay. What does that do? It encourages, it codifies misconduct. And look at the disparity uh, in power between the president of the United States and E. Jean Carroll, who has been a force of nature. I have watched her, right? But still, and, and this, is, this is the law of our land. How do we feel about that? So um, now, now when you talk about um, the, the president not being held accountable for anything civilly or criminally, I don't know if we're going to touch on what I think is one of the main offenders in our system of justice, and that is the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel memo that says a sitting criminal president cannot be charged with a crime. And what we know is that Donald Trump stole the presidency. That's just applying the facts and the law. That's not a political calculation. He paid off, unlawfully paid off, porn stars and playmates to bury deeply damaging information from the American voters that we were entitled to know before we went to the ballot box. He literally, he figuratively, I guess, robbed us of the full value of our vote by committing campaign finance violations with Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen went to prison for committing crimes with, at the direction of, and for the benefit of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has never been charged. He also happened to collude with Russia through Paul Manafort and lots of other ways. So he stole the election in a very real sense. Then once he took office, he held up the shield of the presidency to say, you can't charge me with the crimes I committed to steal the presidency, to acquire the very shield I am holding up against prosecution. If that's not a special kind of governmental insanity, I don't know what is. So hopefully Merrick Garland's Department of Justice will revisit that horrific OLC memo saying you can't prosecute a sitting criminal president, which has no legal precedent, it has no statutory law, and it has no constitutional authority behind it. It's a policy. And the Department of Justice lawyers said, we don't think it's a good idea for you to prosecute our boss, the president. Well, that's absurd. And that really needs to be revisited. I was muted, but I knew there was a little more rant left in you. Uh, let's, can we look at all of your, uh, hold up the mug for a minute. Mm. Oh, I got my team justice and people make these things and send them in. And I don't know if you can see that. Justice, justice is a full, is a full contact, contact sport. sport. Yeah. It's, this has become my makeshift uh, museum of justice because people from all over the world send justice themed stuff out of the blue. And it's just very, heartwarming and lovely. Um, this is my uh, makeshift ode to a crumbling democracy you see in the background. So 
Oh, gosh, I'm about to teach my students about this Office of Legal Counsel memo next week. And I, I feel like just... Well, can I come be a guest lecturer yes, with you and we can do absolutely. a little tandem thing? But but it's late at night for me. So I might just play that bit. Yeah, um, I'd also be happy to join you, seriously. Like teaching is one of my favorite things. All right. Well, I'm going to actually note that. So, gosh, there's so much more we can cover, but the New York investigations. Mm-hmm. Let's move to the New York investigations. These have been in the news, uh, I'm going to say recently because it's COVID and I've completely lost track of time. Uh, Briefly, what happened is we knew that the New York Attorney General was looking into civil wrongs, and it looked like those were related to issues regarding uh, inflating property values to get a loan and then deflating property values to get favorable tax treatment. Other things, but it seemed like that was the main crux of what was behind those investigations. The New York, um, excuse me, the Manhattan District Attorney looking into similar allegations, but on the criminal side. Uh, There were also questions about um, payments made to the former president's adult children who were uh, treated as consultants and then big tax write-offs that were taken as a result of those payments. Uh, We could keep going. This is largely, let's remember, how did this largely start? because the president's former attorney, Michael Cohen, went before Congress and said, here's a breadcrumb and here's a breadcrumb and here's a breadcrumb and could you go ahead and follow those up? Now, I gave a really brief uh, preview here, Glenn, but could you talk to us first about the news that the New York Attorney General announced it's working with the Manhattan DA. So as I set Mm -hmm. it up, the Attorney General was looking at civil issues. The Manhattan DA was looking at criminal issues. And now we know they've joined. What does that mean? What can we take away from that? The idea that the Attorney General and the DA has joined because as we know, there's often turf wars when it comes to an AG and the DA. So what should we make of this? Yeah, the, the political point I think is is also in play and, and one that is conjured up by the whole turf wars notion. So I'll finish with that. but. Let me start with, you know, attorneys general in the 50 states generally don't have uh, prosecutorial responsibilities. Some do in limited circumstances. Um, So Tish James, as the attorney general for the state of New York, doesn't really prosecute cases. That's left for the district attorney's offices and the various jurisdictions around New York. There's an exception to that. There's a law in New York that says the, the attorney general's office can prosecute certain business-related crimes. And I forget the precise jurisdiction, but they carved out this little niche for the attorney general to exercise um, criminal uh, responsibility or jurisdiction, which would ordinarily be left to the district attorney. So apparently, whatever it was that was in that 10 years of Donald Trump's tax returns and financial documents that Donald Trump fought so hard, to keep under wraps, including two trips to the Supreme Court, must have revealed something that gave rise to Tish James' jurisdiction. And so that's why the attorney general became a player in the criminal investigation and is now partnered up with Cy Vance, the district attorney for Manhattan. Listen, two prosecutorial heads are better than one, are more dangerous than one for the target of the investigation. But even setting Tish James aside for a moment, 
every single data point that we have seen coming out of the Manhattan District Attorney probe screams Donald Trump and or members of the Trump organization are about to be indicted, right? Not only do they finally have, after a two-year battle, all of Donald Trump's tax returns and financial documents, but they hired Mark Pomerantz, a former federal prosecutor, expert mob prosecutor, also a very accomplished white-collar defense attorney after he left the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office. So he is one-stop shopping for prosecutorial expertise when it comes to a corrupt organization like the Trump Organization. They hired him to head up the investigative and prosecutorial effort. They paid buku money. They spent a lot of New York taxpayer money hiring expensive forensic accounting firms to, I believe, prepare to indict and try Donald Trump. And then they impanel a special Donald Trump marquee grand jury. Grand juries in New York only sit for four weeks at a time. They just impaneled a six-month grand jury. So that grand jury can wrap its arms around all things Trump. So, and, and let me just give the, your students a little bit of insight. It, like in DC, for example, in Superior Court, our grand juries sit for six weeks at a time. In federal court, we're the prosecutors in DC for both the federal courts and the local courts because DC was chartered as a federal city. They didn't, they never had a district attorney's office. So I was the local prosecutor and the federal prosecutor all rolled into one in DC, which makes for the most vibrant prosecutorial practice in the nation. That's how I got to try 50 murder cases. And my, my colleagues in the other 93 US attorney's offices don't get to try murder cases. So I was blessed to be there. So, but my grand juries would only sit for six weeks. So you know what happened if I had a long-term investigation, I had to present the evidence to this grand jury. And then the next grand jury, I had to present the new evidence and the old evidence I had to summarize so I could bring them up to speed. And then the next grand jury and the next grand jury. It's a very disjointed and cumbersome process, which is why Cy Vance sought court the court's permission because the grand jury is an arm of the court, not an arm of the prosecutor's office, sought the court's permission to impanel a six-month grand jury to take care of all of the Trump uh, matters so they could return one big overarching indictment. That's what I think we're going to see next out of Cy Vance. But let me tell you, Jessica, Donald Trump is a federal problem. Donald Trump committed crimes against the United States in violation of federal law. That means it's a crime against the people of the United States. And I, it's wonderful that New York might finally hold him accountable for his decades of financial crimes in New York. It's great that Georgia is investigating him and they might indict him for what is a very easy to prove campaign uh, 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 election crime because it's on tape. He's saying you just need to find me 11,780 or 90 votes so you can falsely declare me the winner. I can prove that crime in 30 minutes in front of a jury. And all of that is great. But Donald Trump is a federal problem. And we need a federal solution if we are to deter tomorrow's aspiring criminal president. And, you know, if in 30 seconds, we've got not only the campaign finance violations that he committed together with Michael Cohen that enabled him to steal the presidency. We've got bribery and extortion of President Zelensky. 
And the impeachment obviously was a political proceeding that had nothing to do with whether there was enough evidence of the crime. There is, and double jeopardy is not implicated by an acquittal at an impeachment. So he should be charged with bribery and extortion for that criminal deal he struck with Zelensky or tried to strike. You've got obstruction of congressional proceedings all day long, because remember, Donald Trump told his executive branch officials, do not comply with any lawfully issued congressional subpoenas. And he didn't say assert executive privilege. He didn't say litigate them. He said, do not comply. That is an easy obstruction of a congressional inquiry charge. You've got witness tampering of Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. You've got hundreds of thousands of counts of negligent homicide, criminally reckless homicide. Take it from an old homicide prosecutor. What he did to this nation on the COVID front, we know the truth of the matter because he told it to Bob Woodward, but he lied to all of us and put us in harm's way. He and Kushner and Pence have criminal responsibility, negligent homicide or criminally reckless homicide for avoidable COVID deaths if the states have the political will to bring those cases. I believe they should. You've got, uh, and then obviously you've got the inciting, the insurrection, seditious conspiracy. The man is a who's who of federal criminal conduct. And he needs to be held accountable federally, not just in New York and Georgia, in my opinion. You know, Glenn, when you put it like that, it almost seems like the former president engaged in a lot of not just problematic, but criminally problematic behavior when you list all of those things. We have about three minutes left to cover 17 hours of material. I want to get to one question from Aaron, from Aaron Blake. Glenn, this goes back to when we started. Glenn said the last clause of the seditious conspiracy law was the key one here. What though about the part about quote, delaying the carrying out of the law, uh, why does he think the other part is more compelling in this case? Um, No, and I think delaying the execution of the laws, let me pull my code back out in front of me. And, you know, I was keying in on the part about taking possession of the property without the authority of the United States, which is just so easy to prove because of the way they stormed the Capitol. So that one is so easy to prove. I think delaying the vote is similarly there based on the evidence but it's not quite as directly there as the people who unlawfully stormed the Capitol. But I think both of those clauses are clearly in play. Okay. One other question here. Um, You just mentioned about, you know, 45 seconds ago, you said this is a federal problem. And then you list all of these federal problems. I mean, obstruction of justice, obstruction of a congressional proceeding, bribery, campaign finance violations, if those are criminal, if they're knowingly and willfully committed. Michael Cohen's testimony indicates they were knowingly and willing, willfully committed. We could keep going. Um, a couple of questions here about how likely is it that the Department of Justice files any of these charges? What a great question. So Merrick Garland was a prosecutor in my old office, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and I didn't overlap with him. He was there before I was there, but he is so highly regarded by so many of the folks that I know. And he cut his teeth on prosecuting the former mayor of Washington, D.C., Marion Barry. That was a very challenging prosecution for many ways, but an important public corruption prosecution. And he cut his domestic terrorism teeth 
on supervising the Oklahoma City bombing case, the Unabomber investigation, the Atlanta Olympics bombing. I mean, the man is the real deal. He's a bit of a quiet storm. And I had such high hopes that we would have a 100% inspirational Department of Justice. And and I yesterday's YouTube video was a tale of two DOJs with a nod to Dickens. And it was the you know best of justice and the worst of justice because we've got things like police pattern or practice investigations looking into systemic racism in the Minneapolis Police Department, the Louisville Police Department. We have actual criminal civil rights cases that the Department of Justice brought against Derek Chauvin and those other officers for murdering George Floyd. And what's so important about that is the feds didn't gallop in on the horses because the states failed to prosecute these police officers. The states are successfully prosecuting these police officers, but Merrick Garland's Department of Justice said, that's a great start, but they violated federal civil rights laws. They murdered a citizen and we're gonna get them too. That sends such a powerful message. And then just one week after Lisa Monaco was confirmed as deputy attorney general, Lisa was a prosecutor that I overlapped with in my former office. It's a fairly small click. One week after she was finally confirmed, Congress delayed it, she approved subpoenas for Rudy Giuliani's stuff because a federal judge concluded that there's evidence of crime in Rudy Giuliani's stuff. So it's like we were on this great track. And then all of a sudden, we've got not just E. Jean Carroll, which is a really poor discretionary decision by the Department of Justice, in my opinion, but we have them entering the fray and urging a court to dismiss the suit that was brought against um, the Trump and company, Bill Barr, for the violent clearing of Lafayette Square. And we've got the Justice Department appealing Judge Amy Berman Jackson's decision to release a DOJ memo that would have further proved Bill Barr is a liar. Not that we really need any more proof. We have lots of federal judges who have told us that and made findings to that, uh, you know, in that way. So it is the tale of two departments of justice right now. And I don't know if they're going to get their, um, you know, their their civically responsible law enforcement legs up under them sometime soon, and put out consistently good, you know, position take consistently good positions. I'm a little less optimistic today than I was a few weeks ago, but I still think Merrick Garland is up to the task. I understand what he's doing by taking these positions. He's protecting the institution, but protecting an institution that is rigged against we the people in favor of the powerful, the influential, and the connected is not something we should be doing. There's no badge of merit in saying I'm an institutionalist because the institutions aren't doing the job on behalf of the American people. I hate to leave it on that note, but Glenn, oh my goodness, thank you for your time. What a treat to be able to talk with you about these issues. And thanks to your overly generous offer, I will be calling you back to classes and to podcasts and to lectures. And I think we can all see why you are such a sought after expert. All right, Passing Judgment listeners, that was my conversation with Glenn Kirshner. As I said, I had a great time and I hope you learned something as a result of listening to all of that. 
As always, you can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. Same thing for Instagram. And you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We love hearing from you. Please rate, review everything. Let us know how we're doing. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.